Welcome to the Self-Evident and Forgotten Podcast, a show with conversations on the truths of liberty and odd opinions. We're your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody. As always, the opinions we express are ours and ours alone, and they don't necessarily reflect those of our employers or any other organization we may belong to. Wherever you are, and however you're listening and whatever you're doing, thanks for tuning in. Now relax and enjoy the show. Everybody and welcome to Self-Evident and Forgotten. We are your hosts, Stanton, Christie, and Cody. For those of us who love liberty, the essence of our ideology, if you can call it an ideology, is pretty simple. Please leave me alone. I don't want to bother you, and I really don't want you to bother me. This mentality isn't just for individuals, however. It can also be applied to our communities. Only this time, instead of a nosy neighbor over the fence, it's the intrusive state capitals and the overbearing reach of Washington, D.C. Today, we take a crack at the idea of local control. But first, the random question of the episode. Christy and Cody, what did you do for Valentine's Day? Oh. So I'll tell you a tradition my family has. Um, obviously I'm married, so we do our own thing on February 28th, because that is, we actually met on February 29th in a leap year. So we wow. celebrate that day ourselves Aww. instead, but with our kids, we actually take shot glasses <laughs> and fill them up with any random drink we can find. So, and not alcoholic because my kids are <laughs> seven and 10, but like V8 juice, and then we'll do like orange soda and then maybe a tea and then sparkling grape juice. So there's always like one kind of disgusting one and then all the rest are good. Oh, that's <laughs> just, great. That's our tradition. Not bad. Oh, that's interesting. I've never heard that before. I haven't I either. Like it. I think, I think random... it's unique. <laughs> <laughs> um, my girlfriend and I, we just kind of stayed in, kept it chill. You know, with COVID and everything being crazy, um, neither of us really felt like it would be worthwhile to try and do something fancy. So we just stayed in and I made steak and she made potatoes and we just kind of had a nice quiet evening. Real question. How do you make steak? Oh, so I'm a, I'm a hardcore like pellet grill guy. So normally I have my, you know, insert generic brand name here, pellet grill. Uh, and so that I like to smoke my steak for like 30 minutes and then do like a hard sear on cast iron. Nice. But fun fact, it was so cold in Colorado oh, on my Sunday <laughs> that my pellet grill literally wouldn't even start. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. You know, it's cold when your grill doesn't work. Um, so I ended up just doing a cast iron with a little butter, some mm-hmm. some garlic, a touch of rosemary. Mm-hmm. I have I have worked on my my steak abilities for years. It is the judge of me as a human being. I, I you know my, uh, my brother-in-law, he's, he's, a, he's really into cooking. Um, that's kind of his passion. And we had a kind of a stake off, uh, over Christmas break. Uh, we, the, the agreement, we, we both got an inch and a quarter, um, inch and a quarter, inch and a half. Can't remember. I think it was an inch and a quarter. And the rules were, it has to be, it cannot be grilled. That's the only, that's, that was the only question. So he used, I can't remember. He did not use a cast iron. I used a cast iron. He used um, some sort of other really cool type of pan. One of his fancy pans, fancy pan. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> just, that just humored me. And yeah, uh, he he had all the garnish, and I did relatively similar, just kosher salt. Uh, I use avocado oil to for for same. Yeah, because it has a higher burning temperature. It's it's awesome. Yeah. You shouldn't I, sear in olive oil. It's actually really bad. I concur. I concur. So you use avocado oil instead of butter, or both? Uh, I'll, so I'll put the butter on at the very end, but Same. the idea of the avocado oil is that you can get a hotter temperature without burning, um, the oil itself, which is, ah. which is really what you want for that sear. And then I, no, I do that for two minutes in each side, do it around the edges. Then I shove it in the oven, um, mm. at about 425, 450. And it comes out really nice. Now the trick, and I didn't know at Christmas is that you got to let it sit yeah. Salt it. So you have to salt it, kosher salt it um, thickly, 
and then you have to leave it in the fridge on a uh, on a uh, on a rack for about 24 hours um and then you sal- lightly salt it again it's good to go you really don't need to add anything you can add rosemary and all that stuff but the natural flavoring of the of the steak with the salt just Perfect. I bring mine up to room temp on the counter. So you got to leave it oh. on the counter, heavily salted, a little bit of pepper for 30 minutes before you. Yep. And you if you're just tuning in, out. welcome to this week's episode of Grilling <laughs> with Stanton and Cody. <laughs> uh, no, we uh, we went to a, a paint and wine uh, studio. So I painted a Van Gogh very poorly. <laughs> so... I will, maybe maybe we can post that for our uh, episode this week. We can use that as our social media. <laughs> yes, <laughs> All right, no segue. Um, I'm I'm off my game. It's been a it's been an interesting couple of weeks, but uh, in terms of enjoying oneself, doing what one wants to do, this idea of freedom isn't just for individuals. It's also for communities on the whole. Um, when we talk about this idea, local control, uh, it, that conversation is really incomplete without a discussion of what's called subsidiarity. Uh, the principle of subsidiarity is relatively straightforward. The smallest level of society, which is really the individual and the family, the smallest levels of society should resolve and solve as many problems and issues as possible. That is to say, if a problem can be managed at a smaller level, it must be done at a smaller level. And it's only when those lower levels cannot solve or manage that problem that a greater level, a higher level, so to speak, um, takes over can help out with managing that problem. And I'd want to stress, it's not a matter of uh, the family or the individual won't solve their problems. It's a matter of, can they actually not solve the problem? Because if an individual or a family can resolve the problem and they simply choose not to, that's not a valid enough reason for a higher up level to get involved in everybody else's business, right? That's the whole point of subsidiarity. It's that Local problems, and when I say local, we can get as far down as the family and the individual, that local problems are best dealt with locally, right? When you try to have a higher level get involved in an issue that it has no business dealing with, one, you risk liberty, which we're going to talk about later. Two, they don't know what the hell they're talking about, right? Everyone has an experience of which, um, even within your extended family, right? You, your mom, your dad, your brothers, your, uh, your siblings, um, or your children, you know exactly what's going on in your family. And you don't want your aunt getting involved in what's going on, right? You, you don't need them saying, well, when I was raising my children, I don't want to hear it. That's, they're not your children, right? So it, it doesn't have to be about government. It's all about who has the most localized knowledge to solve the problem. Okay? Stanton, how old is your aunt? Because you shifted directly into like grandma aunt, voice. Grandma <laughs> could be great aunt. I don't know. Take your pick. Yeah, I think subsidiarity gets a little um, demonized. I'm going to go ahead and just stick with the imagery there. In part <laughs> because, uh, you know, it's kind of tied to this. Like it's like a principle of like Catholic teaching um, or Catholic political thought. So I, I think partly it gets kind of treated as a a religious concept, which isn't really true. It just the name kind of derives from that um, realm of teaching, but the the principle remains the same. The other side is you don't get subsidiarity without individual responsibility, Mm -hmm. right? That's the key here. It it's, as you said, something that has to be solved at a higher level, not something that people decide that they don't want to deal with. And that's what you see a lot today. And that's where you see where this concept is kind of turned on its head is that people just don't want to take individual responsibility for certain things. People want to run things up the flagpole because naturally it's easier to not have to make the decision. It's easier to rely on somebody else to make the decision. And then if it goes well, you're good to go and you no stress. And if it goes poorly, well, it was his fault, not mine. So mm-hmm. You know, it's this concept that kind of gets demonized, but it really does tie in with individual responsibility and this kind of mini federalism idea, this 
you know, local is better for the purposes of government, for the purposes of it, your life, for, for the purposes of individual right, you know, the smaller you can get, the, the closer to home you can get, the better off you're going to be tailoring decisions and tailoring um, expenditures and, and everything in your daily life. Right. Well, I think you're right. And I think what people forget is when sometimes individual responsibility doesn't sound so awesome. It sounds like it'd be nice if someone else made the decision for you or someone who potentially has more knowledge or who has more experience. But people forget that every time they cede some of that responsibility and the ability to make that choice to someone else, they give up more than they think they are. And this is precisely what we see happen in government where the government grows and grows and gets bigger and bigger, it takes control over more areas of our lives. It's because people get comfortable not taking individual responsibility and not making personal choices for um, what they choose to do in their life. If it's, well, in this area of my life, it's easier to let someone else do it. But then usually the one making the decision when it's government just grabs up more and more. And then we see more government control, which is of course what we all don't want. One of the hallmarks of government power is, um, is is that children's book. If you give a mouse a cookie, right? <laughs> if you give a mouse a cookie, he'll want a glass of milk. If you give the government power to help you on this front, you give the power of the government to interfere with you on a different front, right? That That's kind of the nature of power, unfortunately. Even with a constitutional republic where laws are set out and explicit, that still can be problematic. Now, when we talk about this, these levels of subsidiarity, there's no one clear formula of what the next level is. Like our constitution only recognizes state authority, not, you know, city versus county versus city or uh, yeah, uh, county versus city or whatever, just state, national government. But, you know, it, in terms of as being a principle, not a law, subsidiarity is best when you can subdivide as best you can. You know, the individual, the, the immediate family, the extended family, the neighborhood, uh, the ward, the town, the city, the county, uh, regions of the county, a district, the, the state itself, a, a consortium of states, and then maybe in the nation, maybe a continent, then maybe the world, right? But, but, but the point is that you don't want to go up a level unless you absolutely have to, and that when you do go up a level, you only go up to that level that is absolutely necessary to solve the problem. Um, you know, if we were to take a, a, a quagmire of a problem like healthcare, right? How how does a family deal with a, a medical crisis with with, with um, costs and time and everything? You know, you you would hope that you have an extended family to help you out, and if they just don't have the resources, then you go to your wider community. And they try their best to help you out too, and so on and so forth down the line. Okay, it's this idea of having a backdrop. We could call it a safety net, but I know there are some people who don't like that word. We have a backdrop by which when lower level resources aren't enough, you can rely upon that background. Yeah, the problem is now we just immediately shove everything that we can up to the federal government. I mean, mm -hmm. the federal government controls every aspect of your daily life. I mean, you can't name a single thing that the federal government doesn't have some ability to regulate. I mean... We're recording on audio equipment that's subject to federal law in, in multiple scenarios. I mean, you're listening to this on a device that's subject to federal regulation in multiple different instances. I mean, there's nothing you do that the federal government doesn't have a hand in. Um, I always I, during my uh, freshman economics course, I always throw at them early in the year. America is not capitalist; we're quasi-fascist, and they just are like. What? You mean like the Nazis? I'm like, I don't know, not like the Nazis, but yes, like the Nazis. Well, what do you mean? <laughs> well, tell me one thing that you do that isn't controlled, regulated, or whatnot, or taxed by the government. And they go, oh, mm -hmm. but what about, mm, no, maybe. It's got, no, man. And then they just, you, you see the their eyes just go, oh my God, no, no, no. I'm like, don't worry. We're not that bad but we could be there's a great like twitter account called crime a day that publishes just crazy federal regulations i would totally recommend everybody go and check it out some of them are hilarious like the amount of cherries in a fruit salad is federally regulated no like oh yeah and like you know 
we all know that like the dairy laws and surrounding like labeling and stuff like that, but some of them are just so insane these days. I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy to think of the things that the federal government is regulating and like, how does the federal government need to regulate the number of cherries that are in my fruit salad? Like in what way does that make my life better? Well, and part of the problem too is, I mean, that's like a very hilarious and ridiculous one that I'm going to guess is probably not heavily enforced. Um, would also be difficult to enforce, come inspect all the fruit salads. But the problem is the fact that laws like that are even on the books and technically could be enforced. Like we've ceded that much control to the federal government and honestly to the agencies that implement all these regulations, which is its own topic for another day. But that is, that's the major problem is even if you're like, oh, well, I can forget about that because they're not really enforced against me. How, cause that's a big question I hear a lot. Well, how are they gonna enforce that? And lawyers, I think in general hear that a lot. Well, is that really gonna be enforced against us? And often the answer is no, but the potential is still there when a law or regulation exists. And that's why this should concern people, because if the government can make a regulation like that and can make a law like that and put it on the books, technically they can find a way to enforce it. And then it comes down often to who is in power. And can we always predict that? Do we know who will one day be in power? We don't. And so ceding that kind of control, no matter how ridiculous it seems in some moments, may one day not end up to be so ridiculous. If you heard about the federal government enforcing or not enforcing laws in this current time, we recommend that you check out our last episode where we discuss the bureaucracy under the Biden administration. Just an <laughs> FYI. There you go. Good plug. <laughs> well, yeah, like the cherries is a crazy example, but it's just like, so that's title 21, chapter mm. one, sub chapter B, part 145, sub part B, section 145.135, subsection A to I- a through C. You really researched that. Well, it's just like, so that is just literally regulating cherries and canned fruit cocktail. But think yeah. about the millions of things that are sitting in subsection of a subsection of a part of a subchapter. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's unreal. Probably written by some, you know, lobbyist or another that shoved it onto an unexpecting bureaucrat. said, yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah. And beside me and the guy that runs a crime a day, it probably hasn't been read by more than <laughs> three individuals over the past 20 years. So <laughs> this idea of shoving things up to the federal government of every time something goes wrong or every time there's a problem, you need the highest authority to regulate it results in this. It's This is the problem when you don't embrace subsidiarity, when you don't embrace local and individual responsibility. Um, and when you don't let the market react, right? I mean, you're not letting communities react to, um, you know, bad sellers or bad producers in their neighborhoods, or even states react to bad production facilities in their, in their neighborhoods or in their state, sorry. Um, and, and so this is the problem. Every time that you have to have an issue solved by the highest power, you've added a subpart of a subchapter of a chapter of a title that may or may not be enforced, but is a federal law that can be enforced against you. And we, yeah, well, and then the laws become unknowable too, oh, because yeah. most people don't have a clue where to go find them. I and... didn't want to tell on Stanton, but I know that he was making fruit cocktail the other day. And I think <laughs> it had more than 6% cherries. Luckily it wasn't canned. It was bottled. I mean, and I haven't seen that sub chapter yet. So thankfully he's among friends. So we won't be, oh, we won't man. be recording him anytime soon. <laughs> But, you know, but no, it's just ridiculous. The levels not, to which people can't find out what's actually governing their lives. And that's what local government can do. You can actually go talk to your mayor. You can talk to your city councilman. You can talk to your school board member. But you really can't go talk to these bureaucrats and all these offices or the federal government level are usually very hard to get in touch with. Um, so yeah, passing it off to them makes it even more untouchable for the average citizen. And this is not simply a problem of you know, national government versus the state governments. Though, to be fair, in the early days of the republic, governors were far more important than senators or presidents simply because they had – there was an expectation that they would be taking more care of things of their states than Congress. No one asked Congress, hey, it's cold. Can you give us uh, another grant to help us out, you know, looking at you, Texas – you know, could you help us out here? No, Texas would take care of itself. Yeah, what happened to you, Lone Star guys? But it's not to get you no know, 
pierced by the Longhorns. Um, it's not just about state versus national government. This goes directly to state governments themselves. Take just for clarity, Colorado. Okay, Colorado has a, a little over six million people. Okay, we are double the size of the republic in 1787. Now, if at that time, the founding fathers were saying, we need this many representatives for the nation, and then we also need the state legislatures, we might want to consider the fact that our our, our state governments are too big to deal with local problems today. I mean, certainly California is too massive. New York alone wouldn't be able to take care of New York City. So you also have to consider that a free people, if they want to remain free, need to place stronger emphasis on those who have a direct line to their lives. If you look around, we talked about um, we talked about the quarantine orders. We talked about the restaurant lockdown orders a couple episodes ago. This isn't done by Congress. It's barely being done by the state governments. This is all done by your local county boards and city councils. This is all done from a local area. When you realize how important that is, not just from a policy perspective, but from the idea that our local problems should be solved locally, this brings into focus that, wow, we have been ignoring all of the trash that our local governments have been doing to us. It's time to divert our attention away from Congress, which really doesn't affect your life day to day, and start going back to those county commissioners, those city councilors, those city managers that have been doing all these little things, and we didn't know it. And now they're coming back to bite us in the butt. And I think that's been an interesting thing with the orders, right? Is a lot of times, you know, not to kind of cover territory we have previously, but a lot of times when we saw major issues with COVID orders, it's because they were like blanket statewide orders and they didn't appropriately treat places better. I think California is the perfect example for this, right? Because of LA and San Francisco, there's was basically a blanket order in, in California that you know, shut everything down. But then you had even San Diego, which is a, a, a large city, um, had things under control and had to keep applying for variances. And a lot of people forget that like central California is pretty rural. I mean, you're, you're, there's a lot of farm communities in there. There's a lot of agriculture, not very densely populated. You know, they're not the same as LA. You shouldn't have a statewide order for it. So I think that's a perfect kind of illustration of this. And I think one of the best things probably to come out of this situation is that, you know, Stan, you're exactly right. People are focusing on local a lot more. People are, people know who their county health board is. Yeah, good. <laughs> and I don't think that was probably true two years ago. No, no, and one of the proposals, incidentally, that the state legislature in Colorado is doing right now is actually to control those health boards they are trying to remove county commissioners from the local health boards. Basically, <laughs> another layer of, I think, government interference that people, you know, you used to be able to say, hey, I can go to my county commissioner and talk about local issues and health issues because one or more of them, especially in the smaller counties, sit on the health boards as well. And this is a bipartisan issue, actually, it's nothing to do with which party you're a part of. Um, but the Democrats in the state legislature now want to remove the ability for these commissioners to sit on the boards. I think in part as punishment for some of these commissioners and health boards that spoke out against mm -hmm. the state um, restrictions that were not localized and didn't give freedom to local areas, they would rather have more bureaucrats and more diverse people on all these boards. So it can't be a commissioner who actually knows his area and knows the issues. Now they want to ban them from sitting on the health boards. Uh, we'll see where that goes, but I know it's actually a big issue in this session. Now, we've been talking about how a free people need to be vigilant in their local politics and generally just in their local affairs, local being neighborhood, being city, county, whatever, uh, that they need to be more vigilant. One of the areas that I think citizens do a better job of being vigilant in are school boards. Um, school districts, uh, depending on where you live, are their own government entities with a certain amount of taxing authority um, that get to oversee the education of children in that area. In Colorado, we have some 
interesting dimensions with our school districts. And it ties closely into another uh, facet of Colorado politics called home rule. Um, now, I will admit, I do not know a lot about home rule law. I don't know everything that it, that has to do with localized school district control. But Christy, I think, might be able to help us here. Christy, can you talk to us about home rule and school board independence? Yeah. So Colorado, in my view, is one of the states that actually technically grants a lot more local control than a good number of other states, specifically in regards to school boards. And I'll actually quote from a, is a 2004 case, Owens versus Congress of Parents, Teachers, and Students. And it was explaining kind of what Colorado's intent is, because it actually local controls in Colorado's constitution, which is, of course, an extra special step to make sure that that right stays, the right of local control for school districts and the right for each um, district to govern itself. Uh, of course, there's some still statewide standards that are maintained and forced and pushed down on the districts, but a local control state definitely has a lot more diversity in school districts. So anyway, that case, here's what it said. They were explaining the intent of the Colorado's constitutional framers, and they said that the framers made the choice to place control as near the people as possible by creating a representative government in miniature to govern instruction. So kind of that whole example, which you've been talking about all episode long, Stanton, um, passing that government down as close to the people as possible. And the intent is so that parents who live in Kiowa and parents who live in Pueblo West and parents who live in Windsor can all have, they all have unique concerns. I mean, sure, as a parent, I know parents share a lot of similar concerns, but it also is unique to the area your child is growing up in and perhaps the jobs available in that area or the culture in that area. Uh, and so it's those kind of things that school districts are allowed to address and parents are given the right to address those concerns more directly with the school board in their area, which is made up of people who live in the area. That's who's elected on these local school boards. It's not the state controlling from Denver and Boulder, uh, what people in all the rural towns, how they educate their children. Now, I would argue that just due to the language of the law, there's still a lot of the things that are pushed out on schools that the state and the legislature does control and does force all these local districts to adopt. Um, like, I mean, there were some gender topics, for example, that are now being pushed down to all school districts and whether those parents like it or not, uh, their schools are going to be forced to teach that. Uh, so it's debatable how much local control really exists, but the structure and the intent is to give parents more of a voice and to give local citizens the ability to run for their school district and to actually control that. And I, and I think we have listers here listing from Colorado. Usually it's the off years, like, like this year, 2021, where school board elections are up. And people should look into it. And if you frankly is a, what your kids are getting taught, like run for your school board and set some of those. Frankly, I think it's a bogus system that we put our local elections on the off year on the on, not only is in the is it in the odd year, it's also in the middle of the year. I know in Kansas yep. they have something like that. I don't know if they still do anymore, but it was like in April. Mike. Who is paying attention here? Now, granted, that's that's not the fault of any one person except the people who aren't paying attention. But there are systems and incentives that should be better than hiding an election, an important election in the middle of April when everyone's worried about their taxes. Right. Yeah. Um, a lot of the municipal elections uh, are in April. That's precisely when they're stuck in the off year. So and just now, to, I, do, you guys, do you guys want to talk about the school board or do you want me to get into the home rule? I want to make just one more point. I want to let you get to home rule. This idea that school districts should have more more authority over education than, say, the state capital is great. But there's also, you can also make a further argument. If we really want to commit ourselves to the principle of subsidiarity, it shouldn't just be the school district has more authority. An individual school should have more authority. And this is one of the benefits you know, of charter schools as a place where I work. We have, as our school, our own board of directors. Parents of our students run our school and that, that, you know, our school is unique and it's different from any other school in the, in the district. That's how it should be. And if you want to get really, really, really deep, we have a system, thank goodness, because of the leadership of our school, that teachers have a significant amount of autonomy 
in their classroom. Yes, we have to adhere to some guidelines and curriculum advisement and, and teaching instruction, but generally we get to control our classroom. We are answerable to the parents of the individual students in our course, which just goes back down to those with the immediate information have the best means of addressing problems that arise in their most localized uh, uh, area. And, and that's how it should be. And, and the other side you get to that is, right, so, um, you know, Justice Brandeis famously called states the laboratories of democracy. But that's also true as you get down to these individual schools. I mean, one of the benefit of having different schools and individual schools set their own or, or you know, their own education within guides, maybe, from mm-hmm. the district means that you can have different options. You can have, it would, and it already does matter what school districts are in, right? I mean, a lot of parents move places just simply to put their kids in a certain school district, but imagine being able to see what different schools are doing and they're actually doing things very differently and being able to see the results and and go, and that's kind of what charter schools are doing. And this brings up a a similarly related point. Last one, I'll, I'll get back to you, Christy is this applies especially to school districts, but it can go across any form of government or any organizational system. When you allow smaller localized levels to have autonomy, you allow them to innovate, to take risks. And if they fail, the failure is more or less, not necessarily 100%, but more or less isolated to that incident. Okay. Now, are there going to be effects that come out of that that might affect a couple of other surrounding areas? Yes. But imagine if school A, school B, school C, imagine if school B tried something really interesting, but ultimately failed, it collapsed, the whole school just had to disband. That sucks. That's terrible. And schools A and school C are going to have to take on extra work. But is that not better than if one school district over all three schools tried something and all three schools then failed? this is the essence of entrepreneurship and innovation, right? Allow for local risk so that there is yes, local reward, but also local consequence should something fail. And this is the whole point of, in my opinion, this is the whole point of home rule. So Christy, what is home rule? Yeah. So no, and I agree with what you guys just said. I think the more local you get, and charter schools are a perfect example of it, the more innovation you allow because people are willing to try it because the local parents agree it's a great idea. And then they either try or fail together. And it wasn't really bureaucrats imposing it on them. They agreed to participate. So that is very helpful for the success of new innovations. But home rule, like out of our 50 states, 30 of them are home rule states across the nation. And it basically, again, going to intent that the point of it is to allow municipalities, towns, cities to govern themselves at a more close or tight level than the state. It kind of takes a little bit of power away from the state and grants it to those cities and towns if they so choose. And that's the system set up in Colorado. Cities or towns can choose or elect to become a home rule jurisdiction. If they don't elect to become a home rule jurisdiction, they're a statutory town or city. And uh, a lot of it relates to how taxes are collected, how state taxes are collected within that jurisdiction. So you can uh, imagine why some towns and cities may want to control that a little more themselves. But also when a town or city decides to become part of home rule and govern themselves that way, it actually, there's actually an extensive process that allows for local input into how it's done. And um, it, it controls a few other things. Like there's some specific provisions they have to include about like a referendum or initiative process and also the recall process for their uh, local officials. And the state does require some things like that to be put in your home rule charter, but largely the town and city is allowed to craft it as they wish and identify powers and functions that the town and city can operate under. And I mean, really simply put, home rule just allows for more home rule, local control. (laughs) If you imagine like your own home, you get to choose the decisions that go on in your own home that's why they call it home rule because it's literally supposed to be like, Hey state, stay away from us in these areas. We're taking back the power and the right 
to control this, these issues in our own town and, and, and the way we complete processes and the way we go through certain government functions, we're going to decide that like there's more control over municipal courts, for example, in cities and towns that have home rule. So really, it's just a basically hands off state, we can take care of this on our own. And you see, I think about 100 cities and towns in Colorado are have adopted home rule. Um, it, it's a big mix of small, medium, large, and there's been some small towns that have loved it. And I think your Ray recently adopted it in like 2009, but some of their very, very small neighboring towns just preferred to stay statutory towns because they didn't mind more state interference in what they do. And in fact, I think one of the towns explained it like, well, we just haven't had the time to put it together yet. Our staff is committed to other things. So <laughs> it's always, I guess, a judgment call for the cities and towns of how much uh, time they want to commit to ruling themselves. That's really what it's a matter of. Yeah. yeah and the, the key with home rule is that, you know, they're put in charge of matters of purely local concern. Mm -hmm. And then when there are mixed questions of local and state concern, then you start getting into interesting litigation oh, yeah. issues, which would be an I, example of that. Well, maybe, I don't know if a municipality in Colorado tried to enact a firearm law that went <laughs> contrary to the current and existing state law. <laughs> Someone might have litigated or be litigating an issue similar to that. And um, this person who is litigating that is this don't know person him. going to be successful? <laughs> you know, I would uh, I would think that, that we have a pretty strong case on that issue, but uh, that remains to be seen what the courts have to say. But isn't it, Cody, isn't it pretty interpretive when the courts decide what is local concern and what is not? Like how much, I guess, how much leeway do the courts get in defining that term? Yeah, so this is a really complicated topic, and and I don't necessarily want to kind of bog people down with it, but <laughs> it's a you know it's a matter of law that is informed by fact, but it's not a fact question. So with that Sorry. means, yeah, I I know like that's super helpful to absolutely no one. Um, <laughs> what that basically means is that you know. Uh, there are factual questions that aren't necessarily factual questions that don't necessarily need to be resolved as factual questions would be resolved in a court of law, which would require um, discovery and trial. Now, there are some that may and there are some that may not. It's a very squishy area when you mm, get into yeah. mixed local and state concern. Um, but a lot of times, you know, there's a factor test in Colorado, which we don't need to get into. But Basically, the idea is, you know, let's say the process for mending potholes in the street is probably a local concern. But then, well, what about people that are traveling through your city that are from the state and have free passage? This is when you start getting into questions like that. So, you know, sidewalk regulations sounds purely local, but does it affect people that come and visit you? Um so these are, are really interesting and nuanced questions, but uh, the big key here is that with home, even with home rural municipalities, they're still not allowed to violate individual or constitutionally protected rights. So just because it's a matter of local concern and the, the municipality thinks that, you know, our citizenry values X over Y, if Y is constitutionally protected, you still can't infringe upon it. And you know, the same is kind of true. So we still have to, while home rule is generally a good concept and while it is better to bring things more local, there is this kind of umbrella protection that's still provided by the state constitution or the federal constitution. And we're going to well, get into this idea of, of higher level protection of individual rights. We're going to get into that a little bit. If we haven't convinced you that this whole idea of subsidiarity is good, I'm going to give you one more example. Do you know why you, why every state has drinking laws of which you are, you have to be 21 or older, why Texas no longer has an unlimited speed limit, like an Autobahn? The reason is that the states in their weak willedness and in their desire for quote unquote free tax money, looked at Congress and said, Hey, you give us more money. We'll call it revenue sharing. And you know, you can kind of tell us what to do. Like, we have to join common core uh, education materials, or we have to 
raise our drinking limits or we have to reduce our speed limits. You know, you get to tell us those kind of things. We'll follow them. We, we won't care. Just give us, give us, give, give me money. Give me those grant funds, right? So if you don't like the fact that the state just kind of went meh to whenever Congress says you have to do this, it's because the states kind of gave up and just, and just accepted bribes. Congress bribed them into doing these things. And that's because the people of those states gave up responsibility of managing those problems themselves. Yeah, well, here's the easiest right. way to it's think like- about it. I was trying to think of like a, you know, how do I, how do we convey this to somebody that doesn't want to sit back and look at federal regulation? And I figured it out. The answer is think about your job, right? So when you go to work and you have a problem because like, let's say your kids are sick and you can't go in that day. Do you want to be able to just call your immediate supervisor who you know, who you've got a relationship with, who you're a friend with maybe, and just say, hey, Jeff, by the way, you know, my kid's sick. I'm, I'm just going to work from home today. Is that cool? I know this is kind of weird in the age of COVID, but bear with me here, people. <laughs> you know, I, I, can I work from home today or, or, you know, I need to take the day off. I'm sorry. It's an emergency. You would much rather just be able to call up Jeff, who you know, and you work with them every day and get that problem solved. What you don't want to have to do is call your corporate headquarters 16 states away, 2,000 miles away, and talk to some random individual in a random HR department and have to try and deal with that situation two time zones away and say, oh, hey, person, by the way, my kid is sick. And their answer is, oh, sorry, company policy dictates that you have to establish your day off you know, more than 24 hours ahead of time. Otherwise it's an unpaid leave. Have fun. Bye. I can't do anything about it. There's a, there's a corporate regulation that says this, right? I mean, that's obviously not as good for like two hours before you even get that answer. Oh yeah. And let's, yeah, let's hope that you can get through to HR, right? It's all of these things. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of us have worked in kind of four giant corporations and you go in and something doesn't necessarily work for your store or your restaurant or your fast food outlet because of your community, there's nothing you can do about it because there's a corporate policy in place. You know, I have friends that had in high school that had uniforms that were like basically shorts and t-shirts and we were in Canada and it was February (laughs) and it was 30 degrees below zero or 40 degrees below zero. Fun fact, Fahrenheit and Celsius meet up at 40 degrees below zero it is the universal temperature for it's really cold outside. <laughs> but you work in some store where corporate policy is, you, you know, you wear the company t-shirt, you know, it might not work for that store. You look out of place in the community, but it doesn't matter. So that was kind of, I, I think that's the easiest kind of daily life scenario that I could think to relate subsidiarity to. Yeah. That's very good. I like it. Yeah. I try. <laughs> and see in, in Rome in 100. I'm just kidding. Oh my God. <laughs> you just had right. Rome. Actually, this is true in Rome too. Oh my oh God. No. Right. So one of the big things of Rome is that in a lot of instances, they let kind of their colonies, the, the, the areas that they ruled over kind of just run themselves and maintain their religions and the, you know, Roman Republic and the early empire was much more successful when they allowed for localized control. And then when you start kind of top-down controlling, you get problems. Isn't, isn't that how the Ottomans worked? The Ottoman empire, they did something similar. I'm sorry. Is that after the Roman Republic? Have we not established that Cody doesn't know anything after the five emperors? I had a colleague who once (laughs) said, if it's after the fall of Rome, it's modern history. Like, that's I, that's me. I think I said that. <laughs> you said every one of all of you classics. Chrissy, is there anything else on Home Rule that 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 you had to share? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that basically covers it. It's just gives people the right to control more what they consider local concern. I always just find it interesting when the ultimate determination is left up to the courts. Yet another layer of government, and I say this as an attorney, so I actually like the courts. Uh, when they rule for me and not when they don't. But um, that aside, (laughs) I think that's what's frustrating though to local citizens is when we're like, oh good, here's a principle of local control we can understand. And yet there's actually another hurdle or another government definition or another agency or another layer involved. So 
I mean, home rule is not terribly difficult to understand, but yet it still leaves that ultimate measure up to the courts on what do they define as an area of local concern. And do you really meet that standard? I mean, you and everyone in your town might think so, but if the judge doesn't think so, then hmm, you might the, be in trouble. So the American Nazgul. Frustrating. All right. Very good. Very good. Now, we mentioned this earlier that subsidiarity does work both ways. When a local problem needs to be solved, it needs to be solved at that appropriate level. Sometimes that does include the national level. Sometimes Congress does need to be involved. A national defense strategy is good via Congress. Now, could you also have more more uh, could you have stronger state militias of course you could right that's a whole conversation in of itself but generally you do want a national defense strategy that said there's a big question when does a high level get involved not when a local level can't solve this problem but when it's causing problems because this is a big, big stickler. A lot of times when we talk about subsidiarity, there's this synonymous, it, it becomes synonymous in a lot of people's minds to state rights. And state rights is in and of itself controversial for a lot of reasons. Most of us who love liberty like the fact that the states are semi-autonomous in and of themselves. But sometimes the identity of state rights brings up this, this connotation of slavery and this connotation of the suppression of voter rights. The states have the power to solve these problems. Are they failing at these problems? Yes. It's kind of the point of subsidiarity, that those places fail, but other places succeed. The question is, when does the upper level get involved, not because the local levels aren't doing their job, but because they are actively hurting their citizens? And before I let Cody on this on this quest, because he has some thoughts here, we're also going to turn it on its head. Not only is the question, when should Congress or the upper levels get involved when the states or the local levels are hurting their citizens, what happens when Congress inappropriately get in, gets involved? What happens when Congress or upper levels overreach? Do local levels have the authority and the responsibility to nullify and overturn those higher level edicts. So we have this we have this really difficult dual question, right? Two 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 sides on the same coin. Cody, help me out here. Yeah, and this is a really complicated topic and and I think it's important that we talk about it even if it's just kind of briefly, but because one of the big topics in the news today is nullification. And this idea of states being able to nullify unconstitutional federal laws. Now, to set the stage before we get there, Stanton, you're, you're dead on, right? So there's this goes both ways. So after the Civil War, with the Civil War amendments, and then with some changes to the Civil Rights Act, you get this independent federal cause of action for, for a state or state actor violating individual rights. Um, a lot of times you're going to hear lawyers or civil rights activists call this 1983. That's the section that it is uh, codified in the U.S. Code. Um, and basically what that lets you do is you can sue a state or state actor in federal court for violation of a civil right under color of state law. That's almost a quote. I don't know if it's exact. Um, so basically this idea is to protect what happened, you know, that led to the Civil War. I mean, it's to make it to where you can sue to stop states from violating individuals' rights like they did with slavery. Um, so that's an important element. It's something that we hinge a lot on. Now that's been blown up in recent years and now a lot of things are federal concern that maybe shouldn't be. And then we get into the reverse. So nullification is, and, and here's the thing, a lot of times, right, we're originalists. We look back to the constitution. We look back to founding era they were literally fighting about whether or not nullification was okay in 1798. So seven years after we had the constitution with the bill of rights, everything laid down, they're already like, well, we're going to just nullify things. And then everybody's like, no, you can't. George Washington was very strongly opposed to nullification. And 
um, Jefferson and Madison secretly wrote basically nullification statutes or um, statements, resolutions for Are those Virginia, the Virginia letters, uh, Virginia and Kentucky resolutions. Yeah. Right. Um, Jefferson wrote Virginia, Madison mm-hmm. wrote Kentucky um, and Washington and Patrick Henry was a big fan of them because of course he was <laughs> rah, rah, Mr. Henry and Washington like came out and told Henry that if, you know, they were allowed to survive, that it would mean the end of the union. Um, but so uh, before we get too close into nullification, we get really too down in the weeds. There's this difference between nullification and kind of commandeering, which we'll call. So basically the federal government cannot, as a matter of law, force states to enforce federal law. There's a case, uh, Prince v. New York, Prince v. United States, something like that, P-R-I-N-T-Z. And basically it, it stands for you can't create a federal law and then make like state police enforce your federal law. So that's a standing principle. So a lot of what you're seeing right now in reaction to the administration and, and executive orders, a lot of this you saw under immigration when Trump was in office or uh, with marijuana law is that states were saying, look, we're just not going to help the feds enforce federal law. We're, so that is a fairly well-established principle. Um, it's pretty clear that that's okay under all levels of law or under constitutional interpretation as well as in the current state of the law. The question is, can a state stop federal agents from enforcing federal law in their boundaries? And that is nullification. And like I said, they've been fighting about this since 1798. But the real underlying question here, what really matters to dig into is who gets to interpret the Constitution? Because there's a Supreme Court case that says that the United States Supreme Court is the ultimate arbiter of the Constitution, which was decided pretty close to when the Constitution was ratified. But the Constitution doesn't necessarily say that. So what makes the Supreme Court better able to interpret the Constitution than your constitutionally elected sheriff or your governor who's elected to the Constitution and is answerable to the people? And the reason you get this conflict is because then if the Supreme Court says, yep, that's federal law, it's constitutional, you're good to go, and the state governor says, no, that violates my citizens' constitutional rights, constitutionally protected rights, who gets to win? And this is a really tough question that you end up uh, tangling down with. So, okay. So this nullification problem of who, who basically gets to decide what is the, the, the proper procedure, the proper interpretation of the court. Um, and though we, we've, we've touched a little bit on the problems of judicial review in of itself. We can, we can definitely go farther and farther down judicial review problems, but because this is a question that's essentially unanswered, well, it, it is answered. It's answered by war. War said that states cannot nullify, but it's not legally. It's not been peacefully or statutorily super defined because, you know, replace the states and the Congress with some other level of government. Should a local school district be able to look at the state and say, that's dumb. We don't have the resources to do what you want. So go, you know, take take a rural, rural county school. Okay. They probably have certain different focuses, edu- educational priorities that are different than what the Denver uh, school district might. And to impose a blanket requirement is like, that's dumb. We're not going to do that. That's just essentially nullification to an extent. Now, Cody takes in the reverse, or Chrissy takes in the reverse. We have we have nullification because the higher level has overreached their authority. What happens when the states overreach their authority, or when, or when the local level uh, undermines the rights of their people? When when can a higher level get involved in a local matter, even if the local matter is still solvable, quote unquote, by that lower level? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know that my answer is going to be directly on point, but hey, I'm an attorney, so let's roll with it. Uh, <laughs> I guess, and this is probably just because I do constitutional law. I mean, I always think the local level is really the only time you can sort of bypass the local level and get the federal government to come in is if it is a really purely constitutional issue. Um, if you can say, well, they violated this local ordinance, but it's also a big free speech violation. I mean, you can choose to bypass your local levels and go to the federal courts. Um, but a lot of federal courts don't like people who skip their local levels, because, and not because they're all so principled necessarily, some of them are, but because they would like to get cases out of their courts <laughs> and, and you know, clear up their docket <laughs> and push it back down to the local. So if you have a pressing local issue that really is more on point, that's where you will see the federal government uh, and the judiciary push it down to the local level and say, no, 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 you've got another issue you've got to deal with. And, and maybe Cody has a more on point answer, but that's mine for you. Yeah. And so I think where nullification and subsidiarity um, kind of overlap is the Supreme Court. And, and actually, you know, interestingly, some justices have recognized this of you know, it's really hard for them to understand what it's like to live in, you know, rural Colorado. You know, now we have Justice Gorsuch on the bench, who is out of the Tenth Circuit, who, you know, is a family from out is from a family from Colorado. So you get some some interesting dynamics. But prior to that, I think the stat was that like every Supreme Court justice had grown up within like a 50 mile radius of one another or something like that. I mean, I'm, I'm throwing things here. If somebody can correct me, that'd be great. Sounds right. Um, but it was something to that effect. And, and that's kind of a problem. The benefit of subsidiarity in this context is that your local actor is answerable to the people and is much more likely going to understand what the consensus of the community believes that their rights are, which is also dangerous. So the benefit that you get there from the nullification side is you have your local sheriff. Let's, it's the easiest example as a constitutional officer who is enforcing your local laws against the community, but he also knows what the community is willing or what the community feels is, is appropriate, right? So there's a lot of local sheriffs that came out against certain, um, a gun lawyer, certain gun regulations and gun laws and said, we're just not going to enforce them because I believe that's unconstitutional. My community elected me and my, you know, it's my assertion that my community believes that those are unconstitutional. So that's really good. But now what if you have a sheriff that comes in and goes, oh yeah, we're just going to start seizing property for the public benefit because that's what my community needs. And we need a state run city that's established, you know, based solely on, or a community run city that's based solely on shared property right? And they start taking individuals property for it. That's where you get into the problem. And I, you know, I think the right answer here is that there's not a good answer here. There's a reason that you have our founding fathers, heavyweights, boxing this issue out within 10 years of, of drafting the document or getting the document ratified. You have Washington who wasn't as involved necessarily with the constitutional structure at that point, but you have Washington going to battle with Patrick Henry. You have Jefferson and Madison secretly writing resolutions about nullification so that they're not outed on their positions. Like, and then also any time that you are defending and you are on the side of John C. Calhoun's position, you should be very cautious. So you've got this really complicated subject that quite literally led to a civil war. And, um, you know, one of my colleagues, we were talking about this the other day, and he had a good point. He said, maybe nullification was the right stance prior to the civil war amendments. And maybe after the civil war amendments, nullification is no longer part of our constitutional structure. But, you know, I think it's what people should be thinking about here, right, is who gets to interpret the constitution Who's the ultimate arbiter of your individual rights? And isn't it generally better if that person you know by their first name? I love that. If you if you are on a first name basis with someone, that's a strong protection of your liberty. And everything Cody just said, that this is a difficult answer, ultimately comes back to the very beginning. 
a free people requires self-sufficiency and self-responsibility. That's ultimately what this comes down to. The best, the solution is to be jealous of your rights, to be jealous of your liberty, right? And when you don't like what the government's doing, you change the law. The best way to circumnavigate the Supreme Court's ruling, besides you know, adjusting its uh, appellate jurisdiction, is to change the Constitution. Is to do an amendment, an Article Five amendment. Is it hard? Yes, but that's what a free people needs to do. I had a quote from Calhoun, actually from Jackson, but I think I'll, I'll skip it for now. It's, it's, it's when Calhoun threatens to secede over nullification. And Jackson, um, uh, no, a Southern man himself, he said, Mr. Calhoun, if your state secedes from my union, I will secede your head from your body. This is what kind of issue this was, right? This is the kind of violence that it can, it can evict. Granted, Jackson was a violent man in and of himself, but, but, um, we're going to understatement of the year, maybe oh, very, very understated. <laughs> we're going to start wrapping it up here. And I, and I want to, um, I want to, I want to put this to you guys. Um, for those of us who love freedom and liberty, a big question is healthcare. We kind of started the episode with this idea. What happens if you're sick, right? Don't you want the government to help you out? And we've been talking about subsidiarity as the way that you manage that, right? You rely on your community. If the community can't do it, then the community goes to the neighborhood and so on and so forth. But that could be hard to say when you're looking at the world, when you're looking at AOC and Bernie Sanders and the current movement, and it seems as if socialized Medicare and me, socialized medicine and socialized education, um, it seems like it's inevitable that we are approaching higher and higher and higher to this point where all levels of education and all basic medical needs are paid for by the state, by, by forced taxation, right? If that is inevitable, then we still need to look to subsidiarity. We still need to look to this idea that if we are going to have to deal with this tax-based system, then the best that we can hope for the thing that we should fight tooth and nail for is that the collection of those taxes, the distribution of those resources, the administration of those programs and services ought to be done as locally as possible. Americans love to talk about how amazing our federal system is, how amazing our state's rights are. The provinces of Canada have a better autonomy than state governments do, right? The Canadian federal government, their national government, arguably respects the province's autonomy to a greater degree. Now, is that true on everything? Of course not. But the national, but but but, but the, the socialized medicine of Canada is largely done by the provinces. Are there are some state restrictions, but it's it's provincial. They are able to manage it. You know, depending if you're in Alberta versus Quebec or Montreal, you know, you are going to be dealing with with different types of services and different qualities of programs. So if we are going to deal with socialization, we should be doing it at the lo most local level possible. Maybe that's pessimistic of me. Maybe that's too much to hope for. Cody, Chrissy, what do you think? Well, as somebody that lived in Canada for 10 years and had an OHIP card, Ontario Health Insurance Program, he said, questioningly. <laughs> um, you're right in some things. I don't think that the uh, the Canadian provinces are given as much autonomy in most things as states are in the United States. Um, their 10th Amendment is basically the opposite of ours, of anything that's not specifically given to the provincial level is reserved to the central federal government. Um, so there's some, some big problems there. But I mean, I would agree that in a, a, a scenario, like in, in the worst scenario of which healthcare would be federally funded, it would be better off if that funding were then subject to strong local control. Um, I guess that's a better position. I just don't know that that's a good one in and of itself. Yeah, I think, I think healthcare is pretty tough, especially like with the population of the United States and the diverse um, I guess requirements and needs in all of the states. I think I think if you there's still enough states rights activists, like states themselves that advocate for their own states rights. 
but I think a giant federal healthcare socialized system would just get so much resistance for so many years. And I, I don't know, I think it, it has trouble playing it out in such a big country, in my opinion. I think you, you, you look at Europe and some of them do it, but they're really comparable to our states, not our nation. And so I just think it'd be a giant mess to pull off. And, but will they try and ruin everything? Probably. <laughs> but um, I do think we are, once again, sometimes saved by the courts when it comes to states' rights issues. And I'd make the argument that especially with the last four years worth of judicial appointments, we're going to see a lot of perhaps big giant federal power grabs pushed down or rejected by the courts who do recognize more states' rights now than, say, four to six years ago. Yeah. Well, and think about the, the costs or the, the monetary loss by forcing a federal agency to collect taxes that then shifts that budget to a different agency that then oh, monitors yeah. that budget and then it distributes that budget back down into the local level. I mean, wouldn't you rather your cash never leave your local level? I mean, that sounds better to me. Well, maybe think? I'm a crazy person. Maybe you are a crazy person. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to wrap it up here. We there, There's so much we could talk about subsidiarity. We didn't even talk about the Voting Rights Act. We didn't even talk about preclearance. We didn't even get to busing. There's so much in our history that deals with this problem. Uh, you, you could say the, his, the, the, the history of problems in society is all about who has power, the king or the town mayor. Uh, we don't know what we're going to talk about next time. But it's probably going to be self-evident, and it will likely be forgotten. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram and at SEF underscore pod, as well as Facebook. Um, Shout-outs, Cody. Shout-outs, Christy. I can keep it super quick. Um, I want to give a mad shout-out to so my girlfriend, Haley, who has actually been conspiring with your wife, Stanton. I've heard um, and they have been doing a great job kind of telling people about the podcast uh, there in the next iteration of the LPR class. Uh, and they've been doing a fantastic job kind of spreading the word. And uh, also, uh, I have been offered helpful feedback when necessary. So uh, mad shout out to those two uh, and to Haley for being great about it. I, I like that. I don't think I can top that. We'll just second your shout out, Cody. <laughs> Then I'll give a shout out to my wife, Anastasia, for also conspiring and spreading the good news. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And so with that, ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you next time.